Most of you already have your Bibles open. Uh, Michael's going to come up and, and read for us, and we're going to start reading. Go ahead and come up, Michael, from the fifth verse on through verse 23. These are some of the verses that we'll, we'll look at today, so follow along as we, as we read this chunk of Scripture, if you could. Jude, um, beginning with verse 5. Good morning, all of you. Verse 5 through 23. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to those have been giving themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also those dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviving accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these strange things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them all, their ungodly deeds which have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and their mouth great swellings words flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building up yourselves of your most high holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the, in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Lord, we read these words. And we know there's a lot of truth here for us, and we pray that we would lock on, 
walk into it, Lord, grab onto it, that we would see how you want to guide our lives today, your church this day. Lord, written a lot of years ago, yet alive, yet true, yet current, and, and we want to follow what you say, Lord. May it not at all be just the words or the ideas of a person, but let your principles pop out to us, stand out to us in our minds and our hearts, Jesus, we pray. Amen. In the first four verses, we pulled out the theme of contend, that we are told to earnestly contend for the faith, that we're supposed to be participants, that we're supposed to be players, that we're supposed to be doers when it comes to the kingdom of God. We are contending like a fighter does, like an athlete does, um, because that's our commonality. When we contend, when we're together, when we work together, when we're after the things of the kingdom of God, then our commonality in Christ is seen. It's our great salvation. We have Jesus in common. But what are you contending for? Faith, aren't you? The faith that Jesus delivered to you. So you're walking in faith and living by faith, not just for a perishable crown or for a trophy that's going to be consumed someday or is going to rust, but you're competing for something that Jesus gave to you. How did Jesus give to you faith and grace? How did he give to you salvation? Through the cross. And so as we contend, we're reminded, this is worth fighting for. This is worth working for. Because Jesus delivered this faith to me. It didn't come to me by my own earning. So as you contend, as you're a part of the body of Christ, as you're working, as you're serving, as you're living out your faith, remember who gave you that faith. The Lord Jesus himself did. And that was our third point in our last study. It was to contend with watchfulness. That we are to be paying attention, that we're to be a people that are protective. And what we'll study today is an extended version of that last point, that you and I are supposed to be looking, we're supposed to be paying attention, we're supposed to be watchful. Because there are those, and you heard of it as we read the heart of the chapter, who come into the church, they creep in unnoticed, they're divisive, they're destructive, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Do you remember that picture from last week? You remember the puppet from last week? He creeped up, he crept up, and not all of us saw when he got there. So this is what the Bible is saying. Pay attention, be a vigilant person, be a prepared person, and be a protective person. Now thinking about being protective, I have a lot of protective people around me in my life. And if you're a part of this church, you do too. I was, I was thinking about the elders and the pastors in our church here. They're protective people. And there's also a collective protective nature. We're looking out for each other spiritually. Your spiritual well-being matters to others in this place. And when we read about the corruption that can seep into the church, as Jude warns us here in this book, that's who we're supposed to be people who are watching and looking, and people who have discernment and wisdom. Now, when I say protective, I'm not talking about being paranoid. Have you met that kind of person before? They're super accusatory. They're suspicious of just about everybody for every little thing. Let's face it. We're growing. God's changing us. We're confessing our sins to him. I'm not talking about 
always being stressed out about every little person and every little thing. But you know that God can give you discernment and wisdom to actually be protective for yourself because you're supposed to take heed to yourself, but also for the people around you that you love. Do you love the people in your family? Do you love your friends? Do you love your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? Part of the way that love is illustrated is by being protective because look, there are wolves who come in among the body of Christ. I think about the body of Christ as a whole around the world, the saints, those who have been called, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the best leaders, disciple makers that I know, they're protective people. And it's not that every activity is a good activity. It's not that every relationship is a good relationship. But when I look at the church, the healthy part of the church has a protective element to it. You realize that there's a lot of different styles of ministry, so to speak. I don't think they're styles, at least when it comes to being protective. I get the whispers, and I believe they're from the enemy. They say like, well, you know, who really cares who's teaching Sunday school? At least there's somebody who wants to do it. It'll be good for them. We need people after all, don't we? Is that the right voice to be listening to? Not at all. Instead, it should be, I want to know what that person believes, and I want to know what their behavior's like, because they're leading children in the Word of God. That should be of the utmost importance to us. It should be protective. So some people would say, well, that's just a different philosophy of ministry. It's just some churches do it that way. No, if we're not being protective, especially over the little ones, especially over those who are easily swayed, then when are we supposed to be protective? Are we seeing that the word of God says there are those who come in and they're unnoticed by some and now the word of God is going to point out to us their traits, their characteristics. Now as I've observed the body of Christ, it's not just that I see this protectiveness and that it's good, it's also in God's word. And that's a lot more important than my personality or my preferences. Way, 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 way more important that God says there's a chief shepherd and we're to follow him. We're to let him protect us. There's to be a collective care. It was there in the early church. Think about Paul. Think about Peter. Think about James, about Jude, the Holy Spirit-inspired writer of this book. Was he a protective man? Was Paul a protective man for the sake of the church? How about Peter? If you studied this book in advance, you saw the similarities between it and 2 Peter. Very protective of the body of Christ. He didn't want to see the children of God sifted off into the world. He did not want to see those who came and gathered with the body of Christ to be lied to and distracted. And I have to be honest with you, it does break my heart when I see somebody pulled out of fellowship into some belief system that is not of the Lord. It breaks my heart when I see them get distracted, even by another church that's not teaching the word of God. And it's not just because they're not here. It's because I care about that person, that sheep, that brother, that sister in Christ. So there must be protectiveness, not paranoia, not suspiciousness all the time. But I'm speaking about the ability to assess real risk and then guard when it is necessary. We understand physical risk. And there are those of us, we're protective physically. We're like, okay, I'm looking at the situation 
and I'm paying attention for the warning signs. Well, the same is true, but it's even more important because eternity is at stake when it comes to the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ. There are those who come into the church and they have crafty ways and they want to pull people away from the mission at hand, which we were given by Jesus himself. So we get this contend and we get this contending with watchfulness. What are the traits of the ungodly who creep into the church? It's quite easy to say these sneaky ungodly troublemakers are out there somewhere. But it's another thing to ask, do we have any of these traits? Do we have any of these behaviors? Am I joining with people that live like this, that say these kinds of things? Am I following people who act like this? Because I don't want anything to do with this deception and this destruction. Lord, give me discernment for my own life and also help me pay attention to who I'm joining with in the ministry because just because I met them at church doesn't necessarily mean that they're on target. Let's look at the traits. Let's look at the behavior of the ungodly. We already read verses five through seven. But first of all, Point number one, beware of sexual immorality. That was in verse four because we were told there that they take the grace of God and they turn it into lewdness, which means licentiousness or an opportunity for sexual immorality. Where else do you see that we have this warning against immorality? Immorality. It's in verse seven, isn't it? When it speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. I see it again in verse 19. Go there. It speaks of sensual persons. And these people come in and divide the church. They use God's people. They use the church as opportunity to fulfill their sexual desires. Does this still happen today? Certainly does. Look at the warning. Turning the grace of God, if we look at four, into lewdness. The mentality is this. Since the Lord is so forgiving... Since the Lord is so full of grace, let's twist. Let's pervert his purposes. Let's tamper with God's design for sexuality and do whatever we desire. Do whatever we want. This is to take the grace of God and turn it into an opportunity for perverted sensuality, isn't it? It's to take the grace of God for granted because the Lord forgave you so that you could be free. He didn't forgive you so that you could live in bondage. He didn't release you from your sins and wash you clean so that you could go back and live in that same kind of life. Proverbs says it's, says it's like a dog that goes back to his barf. It's gross, but he, he already ate that food, and then he threw it up, and he's like, uh, that, that kind of looks good, and he goes back and he eats it again. That's what it's like when you and I are forgiven by the Lord. He's purged us. And then we say, I'm going to go back and live in the ways that I know are destructive. They're against what he says is good. And the consequences, we can see are evil of this sexual sin. We can see that the consequences are, are deep and grave and, and terrible. Yet the Lord is saying, beware of those who have an agenda of immorality within the church, sexual immorality. Speaking of the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were entrenched in homosexuality. 
They traded in God's design for their own design. It says this, I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 1, verse 22. This is from the English Standard Version. Listen, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 26 says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women engaged natural exchanged, sorry, natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. People using the saints of God for their selfish sensuality, whether it's fornication, adultery, or homosexuality, these are not honorable passions. They're dishonorable passions. They're disobedient. They lead to destruction. God honors a man and a woman coming together in marriage equally yoked before the Lord. His design, fueled by his love, a union from him, that is an honorable passion. When we look at the book of Jude, the date when this was written can't be pinpointed. And some say that Jude is also addressing the Gnostics. You're probably familiar with them because of our study of, of 1 John. And this is definitely first century, but I see how the Lord is warning ahead of time because the Gnostics weren't in full swing until the second century, but it's the Lord warning the church. There is a deception, and it has to do with immorality going against God's design. Telling us here that people use the church to gratify their flesh. Yes, there, there's all kinds of sexual immorality out there. So first of all, don't participate. Second of all, don't bring it into the church. Don't corrupt yourself and don't corrupt God's people. Run from it. Flee youthful lust. Flee from the lust that started when you were a youth. When it says youthful lust in the word of God, it doesn't mean only for the young people. It's pretty common for the old people to be like, oh yeah, those hormonal young people. Well, guess what? They're not the only ones that are lustful. It just started when they were young, youthful lust. Keeping our minds and our hearts and our purpose in the design of God for sexuality. He is good and his ways are good. Don't corrupt yourself. Don't corrupt the people of God. Each time we hear of immorality in the church and its destruction, it's, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? And let it be known that we're watching for it. If that is happening in your life, turn from it. If you're entangled in sexual immorality, run, run from it. Don't, don't stay there in it. Certainly don't use those in the body of Christ to serve your selfish purposes. That's the, a wayward way. It's an ungodly way. 
Number two, don't underestimate unbelief. So beware of immorality, but look at what it says about unbelief. The Israelites were brought out of slavery. They were in bondage in Egypt. And the Lord freed them miraculously, brought them out of the land of Egypt. But look, the word says here in verse 5 that they failed to believe. They wouldn't trust God. They got out into the wilderness. God was bringing them to the promised land. And they wouldn't trust God for their food or for their water. They wouldn't trust God for their protection sometimes when they were up against their enemies. They failed to trust God and believe in the Lord so much that they fashioned an idol and worshiped it while God was delivering to them the commandments up on Mount Sinai. Even though the Lord had done an amazing work in their life, they fell into unbelief. They wouldn't believe in the God who rescued them in the first place. And they treated his leadership, speaking of Moses and even Aaron, with disdain. The ungodly come in to the body of Christ and they attempt to erode faith in the Lord, faith in his word. They'll speak of faith. Faith isn't an unpopular word. It's like, what's that faith in? Who is that faith in? Somebody who is attempting to pull people astray isn't speaking of surrendered, like we sang, faith to Christ. It's not, they're not speaking about confidence in the cross. And unbelief is no small matter. We've mentioned some sins so far. You might say, ooh, those are pretty bad. But unbelief, don't underestimate it. Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, to not have faith in the Lord, to not put your trust in him, to not believe in him, is a big deal. Your eternity hinges on your faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now look, if you go back to verse 4, these ungodly influences, influencers, they deny Jesus Christ as Lord. Oh, they may confess Jesus with their lips, but their lives are headed in a different direction. Like the Israelites who cried out, oh, Adonai. But they actually didn't live in faith. Now, to believe in Jesus is to believe in the word of God. Some people say that that's taking it too far. Jesus was and is the word made flesh. He is God's word in person. So to say, I believe in Jesus but I don't believe in the Bible. That's a contradiction. The word of God, so if people say to you, well, I believe in the compassion of Jesus, and we'll learn about that. I believe in, in, in the love of God, and I believe in the mercy of God, but there's some things in the Bible that I don't believe in. Well, that is to reject truth that Christ has given us. Don't fall for that kind of unbelief. Don't underestimate unbelief. Be watchful. That's number two. Now, number three is seen a lot of different places in the verses of this chapter, but it's especially in number six, and it is refuse to be a rebel. And when I say a rebel, I mean refuse to be a rebel against righteousness. Don't be a, a rebellious person against God's authority, against authority that he has ordained. Now, people like to talk about being a rebel a lot. If you're talking about being a rebel against like the world 
or, or against the, the, the evil system or even against your own flesh. That's a good kind of rebellion. But this rebellion that I speak of and the chapter speaks of is a rebellion against God. And what's the example? The angels in verse 6. They left the Lord to follow the devil. God had given them a domain. That's what it says. What does that mean? He gave them a sphere of influence. He gave them certain power. And they left that sphere of influence even though the Lord gave it to them. What else did God give to the angels? He gave them a home. What does it call it in the word of God? An abode. He gave them heaven to live with him and they left his authority to chase after some promise of power that Satan gave to them. These are the fallen angels that are spoken of in verse 6. This trait of rebellion, look in your Bible. It's also seen in in verses 8 through 10 because it mentions there that they reject authority. So those that creep into the church, they reject authority. They speak evil of dignitaries. Did you look that word up this week? I was looking at it, and it means glories. They speak evil of glories or glorious beings. And that very well could be angelic beings. And Jude does something interesting here. He brings Michael the archangel into the picture. And this is what he says. There was an argument over Moses' body after he was dead. Satan wanted Moses' body. And Michael the archangel had instructions from God, make sure he doesn't get Moses' bones. Now, we don't know exactly why the devil wanted Moses' body. Maybe he would make some kind of idol out of it, get people distracted by honoring Moses instead of honoring Yahweh. But there was this battle over Moses' body after he was dead. And look at Michael the archangel. Is he a powerful guy? Oh, yeah. And he's up against Lucifer. And so I'm envisioning from the start this epic angel war. But that's not what happens. Michael the archangel didn't rebuke Satan in his own power, even though the Lord had given him a certain sphere of power. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He operated in the power of God and in the authority of God. He refused to fail to honor where the real power was. And of course, Michael the archangel, through the power of the Lord, won that battle. So beware of those that are very flippant and casual with their words. And the word of God really does mean that there are angelic hosts and spiritual powers. And we are not to think so much of ourselves that we can go up against them without the Lord. I listened to a preacher because I had some red flags about him. People told me they were, gonna, they were listening to him and that it was so good, so I suffered myself to listen to him. Stephen Furtick, I'll say his name. And in this sermon, he said, you know how I get these sermons? I go down to hell and I box the devil. That's a great example, and I'm not condemning his soul. That's a great ex- example of living outside the authority and saying, so you're going to go down and box the devil in hell. You're wrong. Look at the word. Even Michael the archangel, and all of his power, and all of his sphere of influence, didn't do that. You better be careful where you're stepping. You better be careful what you say. Because there's a lot of power there. And I know that the ultimate power, by far and away, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Rebellion, again, is mentioned in verse 11. Now, it's different here. Did you look this up and study the rebellion of Korah? I think it was, I didn't write it down. I read about it this week. Is number 16. I had to be reminded about the rebellion of Korah. And this was a rebellion against the authority that God put in place in the nation of Israel. It was a group of people rebelling against Moses and Aaron. And the Lord had made Aaron and his family priests. And he made Moses a leader. So some people say, well, you know, pastors and elders, they're not like Moses and Aaron in the Old Testament. But look, right here in the New Testament, God draws a parallel between those. There are those that God places in positions of authority. And these people, Korah, the sons of Korah, rebelled against Moses and Aaron, and they said, we should be allowed to be priests. We should be allowed to have this leadership position. And you know what happened? The ground opened up and swallowed them. And then there were more people who were rebellious against authority, 250 of them, I believe, and fire came from heaven and consumed them. So the Lord is saying in very strong terms here, mentioning the rebellion of Korah, the Lord puts people in places of authority. It's not your job to take them out. Believe me, God can take somebody out if he wants to. Do you believe that? And sometimes he does. And sometimes people put themselves in positions of so-called authority, and they should never be there. We know that's true. But God can take somebody down. He can chop them down to size. And we think sometimes that it's our job to do that. So be careful. Because this is the way coming into the body of Christ and undermining the authority that God has put in that place. And look what it says in verse 10. I think that's the verse. And it says here that oftentimes people spout off against authority and they don't even know what they're talking about. But they speak evil of whatever they do not know. They, they say something and they don't know the full situation. They speak into it from the outside they're critical. They start to sow that division. The word of God says here, beware of that. that. That's not of the Lord. If God's going to take that leader down because he's off track, let him do it. If you need to approach him because he's in sin, do so. Practice Matthew 18. But don't sow discord. Not knowing the situation, speaking evil of, of authority, just aiming to make, you know, these people aim to make themselves look good. Whether it's the spiritual realm or spiritual leadership, we're to be careful, we're to be protective, we're to be prudent. That was the third point, refuse to be a rebel. I'm not saying fall in line without question. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever confront. I'm saying there's a, there's a, a matter of discretion when it comes to being rebellious against the people that God has put in place and even those heavenly hosts or those spiritual hosts. Let's look at the consequences of those who continue to live in this way. They don't repent. You saw it in your Bible. It's talking about hell, isn't it? Boy, there's a lot of unpopular subjects today. Hell is the eternal wages of sin. It's the eternal wages of unbelief and the ungodly life that follows after unbelief. Isn't that what's being described in verse 6? Look there, it says, everlasting chains. 
Look at verse 7. Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Verse 13. Whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So Jude is pointing out what is in store for these ungodly manipulators that have come into the church. He's making us aware of their end. It's a difficult truth, but it's a clear truth. Don't follow them. They're headed for destruction. Now, I want you to notice that there are certain people in this passage and their their fate is sealed. Who are they? Well, first of all, the Israelites. If you go back, why is their fate sealed? The Israelites who, who had unbelief, not the current Israelites. Why is their fate sealed? They're already dead. Great answer. They, they went into the wilderness. They choose to not believe, and they don't have the opportunity now to believe anymore because there isn't any breath in their lungs. Next, we have the fallen angels. Now, these demons are still roaming and working evil, but their end is certain. The Bible tells us that they're not going to repent. Where the Bible tells us when it comes to people that the Lord isn't willing that any should perish, it's not like we're praying for the fallen angels, we're praying for the demons, oh, bring some of them back around again. The Bible says here that that's not going to happen. The one-third of the angels that followed after the devil, their destiny is eternal change, right? So their fate is sealed. Next group of people whose fate is sealed, the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because they could have left the city with Lot, right, and his family, but they chose to stay, and now they're dead. So they failed to turn from their sins. They failed to turn from their rebellion against God, from their immorality. Their fate is sealed. But there is some application attached to this. There's some instruction on how we should act in light of the fact that eternity is at stake. Am I understanding this? Are you understanding this? That this isn't just a matter of protectiveness here and now. It's a matter, a matter of eternity. People's eternities are at stake. Go down to verse 22. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Point number four, have compassion on the perishing. Today, there are some, look at what the word says, who can be pulled from the fire. They have breath in their lungs so they can still believe. Their hearts are beating, so there's hope. The scriptures tell me and you to have compassion on these deceivers and on those who follow them. We're not supposed to say, oh, well, they got sucked in. What can I do? No, we're in a fight. We're pleading and we're literally pulling them from the fire, not in our own power. We're not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior, but we can be instruments of salvation and rescue for others. Isn't that what 22 and 23 are saying to us? Don't say, oh, they're good to go. We do a lot of judging of salvation in the church. I don't see in God's word that we're supposed to do that. I see people that confess Christ, but I don't always see fruit in their life. And if they get distracted by some false teacher and go down that road, their eternity is at stake. Especially those who are the deceivers. They're in the church, 
promoting their immorality, their unbelief. And we are to realize, yes, they're crafty, but we're to care for them and have compassion on them, making a distinction, pulling them from the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. It's not worth your jacket, Joseph. Don't go back, right? He left his jacket there with Potiphar's wife. You read the same stories that I do about people who like fall off cliffs because they're like reaching for their sunglasses. Well, there goes my phone. And they're like, let the phone go, buddy. It's just a possession. I read just recently of a guy who like, he stood up on a roller coaster because his hat was, was getting ready to fly off. I'm like, it's your hat. It's just a garment. Let it go. And he's, you know, paralyzed now because he's like, it's not worth it. This is all the more not worth it. Eternity is at stake. That's, what the, that's why the word is so clear here about the destiny of these people if they don't turn, because they're headed for destruction, eternal destruction. So the compassion. That isn't just to feel sorry for somebody, but that is, it's not just pity. It's to have an empathy that takes action. It's to say, I don't want people to be deceived. I, I don't want deceivers to continue in their deception. I, I care enough to do something. I care enough to say something, to be an agent of grace, to, to point out the rescue through Jesus, to bring them back to the word of God, which provides us truth, to be that instrument. You see, the trouble comes when we don't care. And because we don't care very much, we don't reach out. I've been guilty of that. Have you? I know heaven and hell are real, but I don't act like it sometimes. Or I'm too busy deciding if somebody's saved or not saved instead of just offering the rescue. I'm too busy trying to justify in my mind, oh, they know better, they know what the Bible says, they shouldn't be pulled astray. Well, I'm here to remind you what the Bible says. Don't fall for that immorality. Don't fall for that rebellion. Don't go that way of unbelief. That's what it means to grab on and to pull from the fire. To take action because we love, because we care. Lord, give us a, like, a care for the souls of people. When I see people, sometimes I just see a person. Like their shell, their outside. There's other times when I see a soul, and that's the kind of eyes I want all the time. Like I see them for their eternity, who they are. And yeah, it's a little girl or it's an older man or whatever, but there's a soul there that needs to be saved and needs to be fed and needs to be protected. And it lasts forever in one of two places. Lord, invoke compassion within me and let it be based on your compassion. Our Lord wept over Jerusalem because they rejected him. And it wasn't just this personal thing of you're rejecting me. He knew they were lost in their sins, that they were rejecting their Messiah. And when somebody rejects Jesus, that shouldn't just invoke anger in us. Instead, compassion pull you from the fire. There's another potential trouble here. We reach out, but we don't rebuke. Now, as Michael read this passage to us, wasn't there a lot of rebuke in, in there? 
Wasn't there a lot of very straightforward, this is the danger, this is the trouble? It's not as though you could read the heart of Jude and say, well, he's kind of in between about, no, it's like he calls them out for what they're doing. He tells us where they're headed if they don't repent. He gives us all kinds of analogies and history from the Old Testament. You might say he just goes off, doesn't he? Even though he's on target, he just says, let me make this clear. These people are wayward and they're pulling other people with them and they're sneaky. This is what they're like. He just totally calls them on the carpet because we can reach out and show kindness, which we should, but we have to call out the error, don't we? When it's clear, you go to the person. We open up God's word together. There should definitely be a reaching out, but if they're in error, there needs to be a rebuke. Isn't that what this book is about, the heart of the book, about reaching out with compassion, but rebuking with clarity. I'm here because the Lord loves you, and I'm, I want to love you like he does. There's something that's really off course right here. How hard is that to do? Really hard. It's hard to go to somebody when you just, you see that something's off course. And a lot of you guys think it's my job completely. Eddie, get him. <laughs> it, it, it's part of what God has called me to do. But you have a Bible. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. That's your brother. That's your sister in the Lord. It's a person that's among us. Maybe they're not a brother or sister in the Lord. There, there's no reason you can't go to them with boldness and say, this is what the word says. Is, is this really true? Am I, am I seeing this accurately? That's protectiveness instead of just like, you know what? If I stall long enough, somebody else will deal with it. Now, once again, we're not head hunting. We're not suspicious. We're not accusatory. But you see something. You're like, this, this is off course. And I don't, want it to, I don't want that person to get pulled off. And I don't want people to follow them. That is super hard for me. It's excruciating. It's time-consuming. And sometimes people don't receive it. And, and I want them to receive it because I want to have compassion on them. I want them to turn something just like, hey, you're just going after me. Am I or is this legitimate? Is it in God's word? Are these the marks of waywardness? Are these the marks of ungodliness? I went to a friend of mine, a, a senior pastor years ago, and it was super hard for me to do. I didn't know if anybody in his church had come to him, and it turns out that people did. He committed one of the wayward sins here. He brought immorality into the church, and he was the pastor. He left with somebody else's wife. I mean, at that point, he's running from me, right? Because he's thinking, I don't want to talk to Eddie, right? You know how you could just, it's great. You could check your phone now. You see who calls you. You're just like, oh, nope, 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 right? It's like, I could just picture him. When he decided to go into that waywardness and steal somebody else's wife and abandon his own, he's just going down his phone list. But if he wants to hear the truth from a compassionate heart, right? And it's not just about those people that are from some other church, someplace else. Go to them. And say, like, this, this looks like waywardness to me. 
And, and I'm looking at God's word. Let it not creep into the body of Christ. Let's be a people of grace, but also a people of truth. Let's not follow those who are on the path of destruction. Let's turn and repent when we need to repent. Because in the Lord, there is life and there is fellowship and there is friendship and there is a forever that he has given to you. He's gone to prepare a place for you. And the other path is a different prepared eternity. God prepared hell for Satan and the demons. That's why hell was made. And he isn't willing that any should perish. He doesn't want anybody to take that path of destruction or deception. And so choose the road of life, the road of Christ, the redemption through the Lord, and also the protection that comes through him. He is the ultimate protector, isn't he? And he's decided that he's also going to use us to speak truth and compassion into each other's lives. When it's time, grab, pull people from the fire, from the danger, from the waywardness, from the destruction, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Let us be wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. The Lord puts it so perfectly for us, like gentle like a dove. Not too many people are scared of doves. But the serpent, you think, but crafty, like in, not in a wicked way, but in a wise way. I'm discerning wisdom, Lord, from you and for your people. Jeremy and Christian are going to come up and lead us in songs. And I want you to notice that this song is about your heart. It's the words of David, and he's crying out to God, and he's saying, like, create in me a clean heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And I, I want to be like that. But he was also a man who committed some pretty terrible sins. Adultery, murder. And he's, and, and he's a leader. He's the king. And he's saying to the Lord, like, create in me, a, I need a brand new heart, God, because I... I Obviously, I get off, and then I'm going to pull other, others off with me. Keep me from that path of destruction. And, and his family did have a lot of destruction in it. But as you worship the Lord, just say, search me. Know my heart. Try me in all my ways. See if there's any wicked way in me, Lord. Make, make me solid in you, practically. And right now, I'm here to have you clean me through the cross, through the sacrifice that you gave for us. Let's stand. Lord, this is our prayer. We can't make our hearts clean, but you can. Cleanse us on the inside that our outside would also be clean. Cleanse us from within so that what flows from our lips would be pure. Cleanse us from within so that what we would use our bodies for would be honorable. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.